Welcome to the Republican Professor. This morning we have with us Scott Klusendorf joining us from Georgia, the great state of Georgia, always on my mind. And I'm in frozen California. Welcome, Scott. <laughs> hey, it's good to be with you, Lucas. How are those $9 a gallon gas uh, prices? You know, I don't know what else to expect up here. You know, I, I tried to tell people what would happen and they just look at you like you're paranoid. And then when it happens, they look at you like you're some kind of weird prophet. Uh, but it's too late. So that's my life. That's my entire life. How, how are well, the prices? How, how are gas prices there in the great state of Georgia? Well, they're going to go up like they are everywhere, but at the moment it's 420 a gallon. Oh, I'm jealous. That's, that's lower than it was here before. Uh, I know. Yeah. I know. Well, um, I guess we can just blame it on January 6th. That, that caused every, That's all the problems. Everything. January 6th. It's yeah. Trump's fault. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, is that your office that in, in the background? Yeah. You know, I got to make myself look smart because, <laughs> you know, living in a red state, uh, you can't be smart, right? You got to live in a blue one. Yeah. Well, um, earlier, uh, we before we started recording, we were talking about uh, cigars, and I—I uh, I don't think I've ever had a cigar with you yet. I don't know if that's something you're going to fix that publicly, but okay. I guess I should have asked if that was a public thing before I started. But no, no, it's fine. Uh, okay. We're going to fix. We're going to fix that. We've never had one. We are definitely going to do one. And uh, yeah. I was tempted to light up before we did this podcast. You know, I, I, that sounds great. I, I did, I've had a cigar in the morning one time in my life and I was on vacation and, uh, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't a bad experience, but it just, some people can do it. And I, I just, it doesn't ever occur to me. So, um, I'm, I'm, I'm well, are you a morning cigar guy? Does that work for you with coffee or, uh, I or am, tea or something? I am a anytime cigar guy. Um, okay. I don't smoke a ton of them. I smoke maybe four to six a month. Um, but I'll tell you what, I'll, why 40, you should be 46 a, a month. Did you say 46? Four, four to six, not 46. Gotcha. Yeah. The Just 46 to clarify. a month would be people like Brett Kunkel, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Uh, so four to six a month, that's not too bad. That's about like no, once no. or twice a week. Yeah. Yeah. Dennis Breger has the winter. Yeah. Okay. Why, why less in the winter? You don't like the cold? Yeah. I'm a wuss. I've got <laughs> too much California blood in me. I lived 44 years in California. So, um, you know, coming out here to the East where it's chilly in the winter. Um, I'm just a wuss. Where did you grow up? Southern Cal, Granada Hills. Oh yeah. I know in exactly. The valley. Mm -hmm. Yep. 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 Okay. Valley guy did the, you know, did the whole LA thing, went to UCLA for undergrad and then baptized it by going to Biola for grad school. So I did all the, the Southern Cal. Yeah. You, you made the rounds, you did the secular rounds and you did the Christian rounds. And you now, uh, back when you grew up, the Valley was different. 
the valley was much different politically. It was. It was Ronald Reagan's territory. You could count on the va- you could count on the valley going Republican as easy as the sun coming up in the morning. Yeah. Uh, but of course, that all changed in the uh, early '90s. '92 was the first time the the state uh, really flipped blue, and it hasn't looked back since, regrettably. But growing up, it was a wonderful place to be. The Valley, um, you yeah. know, going to Dodger Stadium was one of the most wholesome experiences around. You could go watch a game, listen to Vince Scully. Uh, it was great. You go there now and you're going to see fights breaking out in the stands. You're going to see people yelling obscenities in front of uh, small children. It, it's really changed. Wow. That's sad. That is so sad. Yeah. Yeah. When you're on the 118, I mean, I've spent a lot of time going right through where you grew up teaching yeah. up there. Um, <clears throat> my first teaching assignment my first non-biola teaching assignment i think my microphone is acting up hold on Ah. my first non-biola teaching assignment was at moorpark college and so i had to take the ronald reagan freeway that 118 uh ron and it's called the ronald reagan freeway uh into more into ventura county right through the valley and uh when i taught at cal state northridge uh take the reseda exit which is on the way and uh, pop down to chatsworth and just uh get in there teach some classes and then maybe pop over to moorpark college if i had to or or over to Pepperdine or wherever I was Pierce college, as well as in the Valley. I taught there for a while. Yep. Several years. So yeah, I went to Pierce uh, right out of high school. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Because my col- my high school GPA, Lucas was 1.9. It was really bad. Um, I did not have an awakening uh, in terms of study until junior college. Wow. Wow. And then I did really well and my grades were good enough to get into UCLA and I transferred in. Where did you go to high school? San Fernando Valley Academy. It's in Northridge on Lassen and Zelza, right near Cal State Northridge there, a Seventh-day Adventist uh, K through 12 school. Okay. And so you went to Pierce College. How long were you at Pierce College? Oh, I dabbled on and off. It took me a while to figure out what I wanted to do, but I roughly spent three and a half, four years there. Um, tried going a business route, then decided I was going to go auto technology, which actually was really good. Saved me a lot of money fixing my own car, which I've still benefited from that knowledge even today. Um, and then thought, um, you know, maybe I'll try theater. That was a, a one semester mistake that quickly got rectified. And uh, then eventually uh, decided I was going to go English, uh, which was a great move, and got over to UCLA while the English department there was still conservative, believe it or not, in the 80s. And then um, from there, after graduating UCLA, uh, a decade later, went to, to Biola. That's awesome. I love hearing that. I had some of my best teaching uh, my, my best memories teaching were at pierce college some yeah. of the 
funnest classes that I had to teach were at Pierce College in the Valley, in the Democrat Valley with these kids that have never seen a Republican professor. They it's it was like I was Van Halen. <laughs> I'm serious. I'm serious. They were like, well, this guy is crazy. And uh, that was. Yeah, I had a, I had a lot of fun. Yeah. The, the, you know, the higher ups I, I had like great you know. professors at Pierce, yeah. believe it or not. Um, in fact, my mm. logic professor, my first philosophy course I took, which was called an introduction to arguments, was Ooh. taught by a guy named Rosecrans. And here's what he did. He mm. brought in his gargantuan sound system from home. I mean, speakers, boxes that were four feet tall. And he set them up in the classroom. I think it took him an hour before every class to do this. And we would listen at deafening volume to classic rock tunes, and we would analyze the lyrics uh, according to what we were learning about fallacies, and we would diagram the lyrics with our if P then Q formulas. Uh, had a blast learning it, and um, to this day, it was probably the greatest course I ever took. Literally a blast. A blast. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you really haven't lived until you analyze ACDC and Van Halen uh, for logical structure. You know, you're bringing me back to when I first moved to California from Colorado, which was 1993. And we had a Republican governor at the time, uh, which was uh, Pete Wilson. Pete Wilson. Uh, Los Angeles, as you probably remember, uh, ditched their 20 year Democrat mayor, first black mayor. They got rid yeah, for a Republican mayor, Los Angeles had a Republican mayor. So those days are gone now, but, um, it's interesting to hear firsthand what, what it was like. So, Okay. UCLA, take me to UCLA. You mentioned the you majored in English. I noticed your English is very good. Um, I can understand you, and I'm a native speaker. And <laughs> you said that you it was a conservative department. Tell me what you mean by that. What's tell us what you well, mean? Well, for example, my Chaucer professor, uh, VA Colby, was mentored by Tolkien and Lewis at Oxford. He used to walk in and meet with uh, those guys at Maudlin College at Oxford. He knew the Inklings, and uh, he taught Chaucer uh, the way it should be taught. It was wonderful. Uh, I had only two hard-left professors the whole time I was at UCLA. I took a feminist lit class just for the heck of it. I thought, you know what? I'm going to do it. But other than that, it was conservative. And by conservative, you mean that they not that they voted for Ronald Reagan necessarily, but that they had. What do you mean by that? You mean that they They were classical think classical Truman liberals um, who believed that free speech mattered, who did not want to censor ideas they disagreed with, who did not read into the text their own subjective meaning, but but sought to gain from the text the meaning intrinsic to it. Hmm. Uh, so 
at that point, you were just beginning to get the the rumblings of what became known as uh, the intentional fallacy, that we should never go to a text and ask, what did the author intend by this? We should only uh, project our own meaning on it, which, of course, we all know is self-refuting, because is it true that we should never uh, intend the meaning of a text, or is that just our projected meaning? But that aside, the faculty I had really thought there was something objective to learn from Chaucer, from Shakespeare, from Milton, from Skelton, from Sidney, Spencer, all of it. And so they taught literature that way. Uh, and you learn to write. The best thing I got out of UCLA is writing, uh, which by the way, the way you approach a critical essay, Lucas, is exactly the way you should prepare structure for a speech. Uh, I remember they had these courses at UCLA called the 10 series. I called them the Darwin courses. They were designed to weed out people who were not fit to be English majors. Hmm. They were very hard courses and they were right up front. You took them right away. Uh, well, hmm. I showed up for 10A, the first of those courses, and I wrote a paper and I thought, oh, that's a pretty good paper. I got it back. It was a D plus and I thought, how can this be? I've been getting, you know, A's and B's on my paper. And the, the course TA sat me down and she looked me in the eye and said, do you want to pass this course or do you want to fail like all the other dweebs that don't know how to write? I said, I, I want to pass. She said, OK, two things. Number one, you're going to be in my office every week for the next three weeks, twice a week, Thursdays at nine, uh, Tuesdays at ten. And secondly, I'm going to give you the three words that will help you succeed as an English major. And may God have mercy on you, on your soul, if you forget these three words. Here they are. Thesis, thesis, thesis. Your essays need to pop right out of the gate arguing something. Don't beat around the bush with boring plot summary. Go in the front door. Tell me what you're going to argue and then meticulously defend it throughout your piece. And if you're not going to do that, you're not fit to be an English major. Whoa, uh, that has become my uh, motto for speaking. What is it I do when I speak? Thesis, thesis, thesis. If I don't have a single sentence laying out what I'm gonna argue in a speech, I shouldn't even show up because I don't know what I'm talking about. Uh, I approach the same way with pro-life advocacy. What are the three most important words in pro-life advocacy? Syllogism, syllogism, syllogism. If you don't stick to a clear formal argument, you're going to get destroyed. So UCLA actually, ironically, did a great thing investing in a pro-life apologist who I'm sure they're horrified by now, but at the time it was great training for me. Oh, by the way, I'm not the only one who came out of UCLA. Ben Shapiro, Lila Rose... Uh, you know, there's been a, a few of us that have come from there. That's right. Um, I think uh, Ben Shapiro went through there when he was like five or something, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, uh, he cites me in one of his books. And I think what happened is he heard me when I spoke on campus at UCLA one time uh, way back. I mean, goodness, this had to be late 90s, maybe. I don't know. Oh, yeah. yeah. Like he that. was seven back then. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's cool. Um, so no regrets with UCLA then. You had a great experience. Absolutely none. But there's no way I'd send my kid there today. 
How's the English department changed? Have you kept up with it? I went over there. It's interesting. Uh, our daughter, who's an English major, like her dad, she's at Grove City College, though, not UCLA. Um, we took a daddy-daughter trip to UCLA just to, you know, relive good times. And uh, we went and visited the English department, and it was thoroughly postmodern, thoroughly woke. Um, I mean, it, it was pretty evident it had changed dramatically from the days that I was there. Yeah, I think it's probably the, uh, that sounds about right. I mean, you would know a lot better than I would, but what's happening in English departments, I think, is something like it's the only language that you could study where the faculty are embarrassed about where the language is from. That is so well put. That is so well put. Yeah, you're exactly right. And you know, what's happened is you look at the English departments and people are afraid to publish. And here's why. And, and you know this, they've bought into uh, an epistemology called standpoint epistemology. Uh, standpoint epistemology says we don't know things by examining them objectively according to the dictates of sound reason. We know things based on our standpoint. Are we an oppressor or are we an oppressed person? Uh, if you're a white heterosexual male, you are by definition uh, an oppressor. And therefore you have no standpoint in the marketplace of ideas to convey truth because you're cut off from it. You are part of the problem. So I think what's happened in English, uh, all of the humanities, for example, is that scholars who were trained to know better have bought into this notion that they basically have to apologize for claiming to be right on anything. And uh, this leads to what uh, Bloom talked about, the, the closing of the American mind. Uh, we become so open-minded and so afraid to take a position on anything, we actually end up becoming extremely closed-minded. Yes. Yeah, that's that's wonderfully said. I, I would add that the racism of the Democratic Party, and I say that a lot of people, when they are embarrassed about a party, they'll they'll specify the time period. <laughs> so they'll say they'll say um, um, that that was the old Democratic Party. Well, I mean, but right. it's it's like it's existed for a certain amount of time. You can ask when it was founded. It's the same party. The the party. Um, just like I can, I can say when America was founded, it's the same country. It's, you know, uh, the, 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 the racism that, uh, animated so much of the democratic party for so many decades has, has been maintained. I think now the only difference is that you wouldn't be able to see that unless you knew what the definition of racism always was. The definition yeah. of racism is exactly how you said it, where the race of the person is discount. Uh, the person is the person's point of view is discounted based on their race. Mm -hmm. See, the, and the only difference is, is the race changed. That's all. But it's still racism. That's, it. That's it's yes. still the same thing. Oh so, yeah, I'm, I mean, look when when you tell white students on a university campus 
that they are intrinsically racist. And even if they are the kindest person in the world to their black neighbors, even if they gave their entire fortunes to a black family, they would still be intrinsically racist because whiteness can never be purged from your system. Uh, you are an oppressor by category and there's no way you can change category. The only thing you can do is become woke to your, to your intrinsic racism and practice self-negation and anti-racism, uh, which is anything but anti-racist. It's exactly as you say, it's just racism with a new label. Yes, I agree. Absolutely. And, and so that's the importance of definitions, I would say. Yes. Uh, that's when, the world we're in right now, Lucas. You're exactly yeah. right. A lot of conservatives, uh, think they can just launch into their uh, defense of what they believe without defining terms. Terms have been switched and uh, it's gross intellectual dishonesty, but it's being done. And if we're not defining what we mean, we're, we're going to be in a boatload of trouble. So Scott, you, what you do for a living is that you are a trainer. Is that, and Tell me if I'm accurately saying this. You train people how to defend the pro-life view. Is that fair to say? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. Now, we, we, how long have you been doing that? Okay. Yeah, we've been doing that since uh, 1990, actually, late 1990. Um, I had always been pro-life. But when I was an associate pastor at a church in Southern California in fall of 1990, I would have been one of those guys, Lucas, that paid lip service to the pro-life movement, but didn't do much about it. And so, for example, I would go to the local pregnancy center banquet, donate an obligatory 150 bucks for the year and go home thinking, all right, I've done my duty. Uh, that changed in November of 1990. Uh, the local pregnancy center director uh, invited me to come hear a speaker, a former member of the Reagan Justice Department, who was a U.S. attorney working in Los Angeles. And this guy, by the name of Greg Cunningham, gave a pro-life speech that was very impressive to me. Uh, not only did he lay out very good logic, but he did something that fundamentally changed my life forever. He showed an eight-minute video depicting abortion. I had never seen abortion. And I watched that, Lucas, and my moral intuitions came screaming to the surface. And I realized that I was really no different than the priest and the Levite in the parable of the Good Samaritan. I said that I opposed injustice, but I wasn't acting like I opposed injustice. I was, be, I was uh, opposed to abortion at the feeling level, but not opposed to it at the behavioral level. And oh, that wow. day, yeah, yeah. that all changed. And so oh. bottom line is, six months later, with the blessing of the church I was at, I resigned my associate pastor's role and began looking into how could I train pro-lifers to make a case for what they believe. Wow, that's very compelling. So this was a, a an acting U.S. attorney, I mean, a, an attor U.S. attorney that was then currently in office? Yeah, he was assigned to uh, Southern Cal. He, he shortly resigned afterward to start his own pro-life organization, but that's where he was at the time, yeah. Cool. That's pretty cool. Yep. Um, I don't hear of U.S. attorneys doing that very often. 
you don't think of a, a prosecutor uh, showing up to do a pro-life talk like that. No, you don't, especially under the current administration. <laughs> um, Scott, so uh, when in, in 1990, had you already graduated from UCLA? What yes. Were you? Okay. Yes. Um, yeah. And how long after UCLA did it? Did where did you find yourself at Biola? How long after that? That was a decade. I took a decade off, and uh, uh, that was good because it established my pro-life uh, platform during that time. And uh, went to grad school when I began to notice that the abortion debate uh, really required understanding a lot of the larger worldview currents that were in motion. It uh, it really required you having some working knowledge of the worldviews that people bring to the abortion debate, the assumptions that they, they bring to the table. And so I thought, you know what, a, a degree, a master's degree in Christian apologetics would help with that. And it most certainly did. Awesome. That's awesome. Um, now tell us about your philosophy of how you approach pro-life activism. What's the key issue? How did you come up with the, the learning that lesson? Well, I see approaching pro-life apologetics. That's the term I'll use to, to describe this. Okay. Uh, I think pro-life apologists need to do three things. And typically they skip step one, which gets them in trouble, and they jump right to steps two and three. But here's step one. You have got to set ground rules for the debate. Uh, in today's world, people love to substitute argument with something else. Uh, they don't want to do the hard work of actually refuting arguments. They want to dismiss them with labels and cliches. And if you are not prepared for that, you're going to end up chasing rabbit trails. Uh, so we want to set the ground rules. And I'll come back to explain that in more detail in just a minute. Secondly, we need to make our case persuasively. And in the kind of world we're in right now, Lucas, that means doing it in ways that secularists cannot dismiss on the face of it. Uh, so we're going to argue our case from science and philosophy. Not that we uh, are hiding our metaphysical foundations. We're not. But we want to at least get in the door by making sure they understand we have public reasons for what we believe. And then thirdly, we need to handle objections uh, persuasively. So that first thing, setting the ground rules. I tell pro-life apologists all the time exactly what I told you a moment ago. Your success as a pro-life apologist comes down to three words, and you can write them down if you want. Here they are syllogism, syllogism, syllogism. If you don't start with a clearly defined syllogism, people will change the subject on you. I mean, I don't know how it is with you, uh, Lucas, but uh, I know how it is with me. If I'm in an argument with my wife and she's winning, every rational mind in the universe knows she's winning, the Lord knows she's winning, I'll probably try to change the topic. Uh, I think that's human nature. And people do this with abortion all the time. So how do we keep the main thing the main thing? We stick to our pro-life syllogism. Here it is. Premise one, 
it's wrong to intentionally kill innocent human beings. Premise two, abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being. Conclusion, therefore abortion is wrong. It's wrong to intentionally kill innocent human beings. Abortion does that, therefore it's wrong. Now, you and I both know there are really only three ways to defeat that syllogism. You could show that the argument is invalid. In other words, the conclusion does not follow logically from the premises. Or you could show the argument is unsound. Uh, one or more of the, the premises are uh, untrue. Uh, or you could show that we've got equivocation. The terms are used in a way that aren't clear. Outside of that, the argument stands. What's interesting is almost nobody attacks those three areas. They only change the subject and want to talk about choice, privacy, why you hate women, why you want to force your morality, why you're bringing religion into this debate. And, and they do nothing to address your argument. By sticking to that syllogism, you can practice what I call narrating the debate. Every time they try to change the topic, you say, time out, can I make an observation? I laid out a specific argument for my position. I noticed that you did not show that my argument was unsound. You did not show that my argument was invalid. You did not show that I used terms in an unclear fashion. All you did is attack me personally. I'm open-minded. If my argument is bad, I wanna know that, but I need you to show me that it's bad, not just call me names. It allows you to narrate what's going on at the process level and enforce ground rules for a fruitful discussion. Um, then we need to argue our case persuasively. That's step two. Uh, look, we don't just assert that abortion is wrong. We make an argument. We argue from science that the unborn are distinct, living, and whole human beings. They're not part of another human being like skin cells on the back of my hand are. Rather, they are distinct whole members of the human family from the very beginning, from the one, one cell stage. So you're on, premise, argue, you're so, on premise two ahead. now, right? Yes, you're on, correct. You're on premise two. And, okay, and then let's, we argue, let's, state that, let's state that again. Let, uh, so a syllogism for everybody out there, uh, if you haven't heard that term or maybe you have and you don't know what it is, yep. a syllogism is a deductive argument with two premises, right? Is that how you define yes. it? Okay. Uh, so he's using a deductive argument. And that means that the form of it is what makes it uh, a good argument. And by good, we, the technical word is valid. Valid. Now, that's one level Conclusion of Conclusion follows. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's the formal, that that's what means it's formally good. It's valid. And then if it's good in a larger sense, it's, it's not just valid, it's sound. And that's a technical word. I know it sounds, the word sound doesn't sound like a technical word, but it is. It yes. means that it's valid and the premises are true. Correct. And so if you're driving and listening to this or whatever, obviously you can't take notes, but you can always go back and uh, rehear that argument. So let's say that argument again. Premise one is. It's it, wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human being. It's wrong to intentionally Premise kill. Two, okay. Yep. And then premise two is the, the minor premise, uh, abortion intentionally kills innocent human beings or kills an innocent human being. Okay. Uh, the conclusion is, therefore, abortion is wrong. And yeah. if the premises are 
are true, the conclusion follows. Yes. Very good. That's great. So that's really tight. And when you say syllogism, 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 you're saying you gotta do it that way because it's just human nature for people to change the subject, call you a a racist, (laughs) call you a fascist, whatever, call you names, right? Anti-woman. Um, a Madonna fan. I mean, who knows? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, of course that one doesn't work as well anymore since men can be pregnant now. Who would have thought what a, what a, what a great invention. And then, okay. So you go premise. One is it's wrong to intentionally kill a human being. Premise two is abortion, an innocent human being, an innocent human being. It's wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human being leaving room for the death penalty, right? Leaving room for war. Mm-hmm. Um, premise two is abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being. And you argue that you were on science. That's the, that's where I paused you. You were on science. And so you were yes. saying that from science, we know premise two is Right. And tell me, tell us again about the science again. Well, let, let me back up just a little bit. Okay. We're not using science to prove that abortion is wrong. We're using science to prove what kind of thing is the unborn. Uh, because remember, our syllogism says it's wrong to intentionally kill a human being. So we're going to find out what, a, you know, if the unborn are human beings by using science. And that science of embryology is clear that from the earliest stages of development, the unborn are in fact distinct living whole human beings. Uh, They're not part of another human being, they are themselves distinct human entities. Uh, So we're not using religion to get that, we're not even using philosophy to get that. We're using an empirical investigation based on the science of embryology. Yeah, uh, that's great. And a lot of people will say, for shorthand, the unborn. And uh, so that's very helpful to use science to clarify what you mean by that. And so I, yes. sometimes what I do is I just say the unborn what? Because, <laughs> yes. uh, for example, flies, uh, well, I don't know if it makes sense to say an egg hatching is unborn. I guess it does. Maybe an unborn chicken or an unborn I think we understand what that is. It's a, it's a chicken that hasn't hatched yet, but it's a fertilized egg. Right. Uh, same with anything that has eggs, whether it's crocodiles or whether it's flies or whatever. Um, an unborn fly is a fly. <laughs> uh, that's what it is. That's why you have to say yes. unborn and the noun, the noun after unborn. Um, but that doesn't always work for people because because of, the way we're made, I guess we have these defense mechanisms and it's, it's an emotional issue and the the emotions oftentimes cloud our ability to think, see things well. So this is really helpful. The way you've designed it to where you're guarding against any of these natural tendencies for people to just uh, ignore the argument, right? Ignore. Yes. The truth. How long did it take you to yeah. figure this out? How, when did it, 
when did you discover that you have to was it right away i mean was it you saw that abortion video from the u.s attorney and then uh you know you went and had a hamburger or a sandwich and then you were like we need a syllogism or or was it how long did it take you to figure that out uh i I, i'll tell you in the simple form you just heard it uh 20 years uh i was I, i think that in the last decade in particular lucas clarification has become a key objective in pro-life apologetics. We have got to clarify everything. And uh, I thought we need a very clear, simple way to state what we're arguing that puts us in the strongest position for keeping the main thing the main thing. Um, uh, And that's why I went with it uh, the way that I did. Now, I was assuming that syllogism in various forms. Uh, I had used other syllogisms that uh, were a bit more wordy and I think too cumbersome. This one, I think, just cuts all the fat out of it and gets right to the central issue, which I think is crucial for pro-life apologists to do. 20 years sounds like quite a learning curve. And I can imagine the kind of experiences that you were having. Yeah. And I have to imagine it because you haven't articulated any specific experiences, but I can imagine the kind of experiences you must've been having to, to go, Oh, I got to tighten that up a bit or, Oh yeah, that doesn't sound, uh, that's not good. I'm, I'm losing the audience here. So you want, do you have an anecdote you want to share with us? Well, I've, you know, had numerous debates. I've probably done 30 to 35 debates publicly on abortion. Uh, my opponents have been Nadine Strausen, former president of the ACLU, uh, Edward Tabosh, uh, the director for the Council for Secular Humanism there in California, uh, Catherine Colbert, who argued in front of the Supreme Court in the Thornburg decision in 1986, Catherine Neer, the president of Planned Parenthood in California, Um, And what these debates taught me, not necessarily through my opponents, but through the question and answer time that happens in these debates, questions from the audience, I learned something. I was winning the formal debate hands down in most cases, meaning the actual uh, interaction with my opponent where we're each putting out our case, I was winning. But it would go to the Q&A and up comes an emotional uh, person who is shaking with tears coming down her cheeks. And she's pointing at me saying, how dare you call me a murderer? You know, things like this. Uh, Or someone who would would say, why do you hate women so badly? Why Why do you despise them? And, you know, at that point, you're not being asked to be an apologist. You really have to become a psychologist. You, you have to navigate a very tricky uh, cognitive situation where it's not arguments that are being advanced. It's raw emotionalism. So in order to keep the main thing the main thing, I needed something I could always come back to where I could show empathy for the questioner, but still come back to what really matters in this debate. So now if I get that person 
who's shaking and trembling and pointing their finger at me, I will say something very similar to this. I'll say, you know, I'm very sorry that you're hurting right now. And um, it doesn't please me that you are. I do want to review what I've argued here today. I didn't argue that I hated women. I didn't argue that I was here to call you a murderer. I argued one thing. It's wrong to intentionally kill innocent human beings. Abortion does that. Therefore, it's wrong. I can make that argument without attributing to you personally any kind of intent or motive. Uh, I don't know your situation. I don't know why you did what you did. But my argument stands or falls apart from how people feel about it. And I can narrate the debate that way. Yeah, that's really powerful. Um, do you think that um, it's a handicap to be a man and, and be in that situation? Well, if you're going to ask me to, to kind of pull out the sarcastic side of me, I'm almost tempted these days, Lucas, when people say to me, you're a man, you can't speak on this issue. I want to say, how do you know that I'm a man? I mean, in yeah. the age of Caitlyn Jenner, that's a risky assumption, sure. right? They have no uh, idea what they're that's doing. Probably, yeah. yeah, yeah. But but here again, this is where narrating the debate is so crucial. Let's go back to my syllogism. That syllogism stands or falls apart from the gender of those advancing it. Pro-life women use the exact syllogism as pro-life men. Uh, oh, by the way, if no man can speak on abortion, we got to reverse Roe v. Wade. It was decided by nine men. Uh, arguments are advanced on their merits. They are evaluated on their merits. They stand or fall apart from people making them. Uh, to use another example, you and I both know this, Christianity stands or falls on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, look, uh, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, Paul is right. We're dead in our sins. We have no hope and we're the world's biggest joke. Uh, but if he did rise from the dead, that changes everything. It all hinges on that. But isn't it interesting that leading atheists like the late uh, Christopher Hitchens, who wrote a book called God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything, he wrote this book and it's a masterful survey of how religion has screwed things up. You got to hand it to him on that. He did his homework. However, could Christianity still be true even if Christians are rascals? And the answer is yes, because it stands or falls on the resurrection. And just like with abortion, in our defense of the Christian faith, it helps if we can simplify things and keep the main thing the main thing. Yeah, absolutely. Especially with human nature being what it is. So, yep. um, okay. So that's a pretty effective uh, response to, I'm just trying, I'm, I'm going to let people see your, how you handle objections. So I threw out the man objection. That's fairly low hanging fruit. Um, now what about, um, the, uh, what about the objection to premise one? This is a little bit more of a nerdy kind of objection, but uh, uh, premise one says it's it's always wrong to intentionally kill uh, an innocent human being. Would that mean that um, that it's intention it's wrong to go to war and 
And uh, if that means that civilians are going to get killed. Oh, I'm happy to get I'm happy to get nerdy with you here. Yeah, let's go back to our syllogism. It's wrong to intentionally kill innocent human beings. And here is where we need to make a very helpful distinction between intending evil and foreseeing it. A general in a just war can foresee the deaths of innocent human beings, but he does not intend them the way that Hitler did during the London Blitz when he bombed central London and intended to kill children. Um, A general can foresee the evil, but does not intend it. With abortion, we not only foresee evil, we intend it. So war and abortion are not morally parallel. And that can be seen very simply by how we defined abortion. It's the intentional killing of an innocent human being where war tactics may not be that. Another nerdy distinction, if you wanna go that way, um, is between contingent evils and intrinsic ones. Murder, rape are intrinsic evils and they should be opposed always and they're wrong on the face of it where something like war or capital punishment may be wrong, but it depends on the context, the circumstances. We refer to those as contingent evils. Abortion is not in the category of a contingent evil. It's in the category of an absolute or intrinsic evil. This is why when uh, Democrat politicians try to claim pro-life credentials by saying, oh, we're pro-life on war, oh, we're pro-life on poverty, we're pro-life on capital punishment, we're just wrong on one life issue, you're wrong on 10 of them. Uh, We need to point out that they're engaging in a category error here. Uh, Abortion is not a contingent evil like the things they are referencing. It's an intrinsic evil. It's wrong on the face of it. It is always wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human being. So what Democrats are asking us to do is overlook an intrinsic evil, the intentional killing of an innocent human being, in order to uh, basically bless contingent ones. And, and this just cannot be. Okay, I'm going to, that's, that's awesome. I'm going to press you a little bit further then on that, um, since you handled that so well, and obviously you thought so deeply about it. So for those people that are very curious out there, maybe they're not up on this debate, but maybe they might be wondering something like, um, well, if someone had read Eileen McDonough, for example, and she argues that uh, it's self-defense, abortion is self-defense, but it's a weird kind of self-defense because ordinarily in self-defense, you think of there's a an evil person coming at you, uh, somebody that's not innocent, right? And it's pretty uh, non-controversial that you can kill that person if they pose a deadly threat to you or, or, or innocent people. Right. That's, just, uh, that's just standard self-defense. Even in crazy California, that's the law. That's the law. Right. And it's been the law. It's been, it was in the common law going all the way back, going all the way back. So there's nothing surprising about that. Um, but the, the claim that the fetus, the unborn human fetus is a threat to the mother. 
but nevertheless is innocent, but is still a threat and can be eliminated on the basis of self-defense. What would you say to that? Well, keep in mind, McDonough does not even think the fetus is innocent. Uh, She thinks the fetus is basically parallel to a rapist who invades the mother's body and massively appropriates her liberty. Uh, And she doesn't think the fetus is innocent. She thinks it's an aggressor, uh, an attacker. And then she makes another point. She says, just because a woman consents to sex does not mean she consents to that kind of massive invasion of her body. In other words, a woman consenting to sex is not her consenting to pregnancy. Well, I, I just find this argument bizarre. I mean, Lucas, imagine me saying, I consent to having sex, but I don't consent to getting an STD. Uh, Or I consent to a winning lotto ticket. Uh, I don't know if you've ever had surgery, but you don't consent to getting healed. You consent to the surgery and it's on you to deal with the consequences of it. We consent to initial behaviors. We do not consent to outcomes that may be beyond our control. Look, sex is naturally ordered toward pregnancy. For her to try to bifurcate on that is really quite strange to me. Uh, But I think there's another problem with McDonough here. There can be no mugger unless two human parents get together and create him. Uh, We're talking here about McDonough arguing that her own child is a mugger, and it's a mugger she created. Uh, And she wants to make it look like she has no responsibility here. This is just an alien, massive, you're, uh, you're, you're saying mugger liberty and you're saying mugger m-u-g-g-e-r not mother correct okay mugger. I, I think the yeah. first time i heard it i think i heard mother and then i heard mugger later okay mugger is in yeah, no, like a robber it, it, crime i I, yeah. I think i'm gonna need to go to spatch therapy after this interview maybe well it's just the technology that we're dealing with that's there all. it is yeah so okay so the uh it is odd. It is odd. You see this in some pro-choice literature of um, attributing uh, criminal properties to the fetus. And it's all, I think rhetorically, the move is that it sure feels like that when you have an unwanted pregnancy, it feels the same way as if you're being assaulted criminally and so therefore i think that's the move the the unborn human fetus which is actually innocent everybody knows that uh has no criminal properties actually at all like uh you know some criminal mind mens rea or uh you know um uh even negligence, the criminal negligence you think of that that's not there in the fetus, right? But it feels that way to the, the woman who has an unwanted pregnancy. So therefore we can treat it that way. I think that's what's happening. Well, rhetorically. Yes, I think so. And, and here we are uh, once again, dealing with a standpoint epistemology that, that basically says how a mother perceives her child 
is what creates its ontological reality. My feelings about something determine what it is. Um, a very uh, postmodern turn idea, uh, to put it mildly. And I think for a lot of people, once you reject the idea that moral truths are real and knowable the way that scientific and mathematical truths are real and knowable, once you have that division between science, which we call real knowledge, and morals, which we call values, meaning things that um, you know, differing people will have differing ideas on. Once you buy into the scientism that says only science counts as real knowledge, then morals get relegated to the personal side. And it's very easy for people to, to then make the move and say, well, my child's value is based on my perception of him. And this is another thing. I'm sorry, I may be taking you off a direction you don't want to go, but no, uh, no, this not is another all. thing I think pro-lifers need to be aware of. Um, there's been a massive shift uh, in the ideal world that you're aware of, being uh, you're a professor. Uh, if you look at the history of ideas, uh, principally the question of epistemology, how do we know things? Uh, if you go back and just trace that history, uh, to do a two-minute version of that, if you look back to the Old Testament period, morals are real and knowable. They're grounded in the character of a holy God. Uh, go forward. The, the classics, the Greek-Roman cultures, morals are still real and knowable. Uh, they're grounded in the faculties of the soul, for example, if you're doing the virtue ethics on an Aristotelian plane. Um, move forward to the New Testament. Morals are still real and knowable. In fact, we're instructed as Christians that by the power of the Spirit, we can put to death the sinful deeds of the body and live as resurrected beings to the glory of God. Keep going forward. Now things get a little bit interesting. Uh, you know, the pre-Middle Ages period, you got William of Ockham saying, look, uh, the particulars really matter here, and we really need to get down to the particulars more than the universals. And then things really hit the fan. We get to the Enlightenment. And at that point, if you can't taste it, touch it, feel it, or see it, it's not real. Only things we can measure empirically are real. Well, what did that just do to morals? Morals are not things that you measure empirically. You don't taste them. You don't touch them. You don't hear them. You don't see them. You don't feel them. They are outside of that. And so morality just got relegated to the subjective realm. And you get guys like Hobbes who says, look, there's no human nature that's objective. We're just a heap of parts. You get Hobbes saying things like morals are just passions. Uh, then you, you go even further and you, you get a guy like Kant who, who really wants to rescue morality from the empiricist. And he says, well, you know, objective morals may exist. They probably do, but we can't get at them because we're trapped behind our own sense perceptions. All of this thinking that really goes back four, uh, 500 years ago is having an impact right now on debates over abortion. And a lot of pro-lifers get impatient, Lucas. They say things like this. They say, well, you know, we haven't been able to solve abortion since Roe v. Wade. The pro-life movement is a total failure because look, abortion's been legal for almost 50 years now and it proves that pro-lifers have been doing it all wrong. 
whoa, wait just a stinking minute. They have no idea that we're dealing with a tsunami of 500 years of bad thinking on what it means to be human and what makes uh, morals grounded. And people think that they can just uh, announce failure and they have no working knowledge of what's come before us here. Uh, these, I mean, I'll, I'll try to illustrate it this way. You've got uh, a perfectly still lake, let's say Tenaya Lake in Yosemite National Park up in the Sierra Nevada mountains there. And you take a rock and throw it into that perfectly still alpine lake. What's going to happen to the waves? They're, they're going to go out for miles if there's right. room for that. Yes. Well, that's what happened to us, uh, really starting even going back as far as Occam, where the focus shifted from the universals to the particulars and leading up to the Enlightenment, where only the particulars matter. Uh, that's what we're dealing with today. No wonder we're in a heap of trouble. No wonder worldviews yes. matter in this debate. Yeah. Sorry, uh, I went off on a, a sermon there. I didn't mean to. Well, you had to give a context for this the the key quote which i thought was the tsunami of 500 years of bad thinking yeah <clears throat> and that's that's what takes some training to see it, it's not obvious to some people well probably a right. lot of people um i'm not sure what they're learning on the campuses but it's definitely not um suited to being able to see it as clearly as you laid out there um, so that leads me to the question of, since I'm an educator and you are as well, you've obviously thought pretty deeply about what kind of training, um, is best suited. Now I would say there's probably different kinds of training that we're talking about. You, you obviously provide effective training at one level, but you've just alluded to deeper training uh training in metaphysics epistemology because you've talked about standpoint epistemology you've referenced metaphysics you've referenced ethics and meta ethics and stuff like that and some people might not even know what those terms mean it sounds like a barnes and noble section you know metaphysics what are you talking about it's like the astrology or something even knowing that and I'm linking it with something else you said about the folks that you debated. And you mentioned the Secular Humanist Association. It's interesting to, to just notice this. What is it about the humanists that would lead one to predict their pro-choice? I mean, you could just say humanist and I can, I not only know that they don't believe in God, I know that they didn't vote for Ronald Reagan. Yeah. So, so now why am I able to know that though? That, that takes a lot of training and a lot of people can't see it's hard to sometimes explain, but, uh, what would you say? Uh, why is it that the well, humanists we, are pro-choice? Yeah. I think because the, the definition of humanist is changed. Um, if you go back and, and look at the, uh, um, you know, Middle Ages or even the Renaissance uh, era, you're going to see people like Thomas More who were humanists, uh, Erasmus of Rotterdam, uh, Rotterdam uh, humanist, um, Petrarch, the, the great poet, humanist. Um, but that's not what we mean today. By humanist today, 
we mean somebody who basically has bought into philosophical naturalism. That's the underlying worldview. And philosophical naturalism simply stated is we live in a closed universe. The universe is nothing but physical reality. And there's nothing more to human beings than synapse firings and chemistry equations in the physical brain. Uh, you are your brain states is what we're dealing with in terms of human nature and philosophical naturalism. So humanist today does not mean you believe humans have intrinsic value because intrinsic value does not exist on naturalism. Uh, on naturalism, what is is just what is. There's nothing special to it. Um, in fact, all living things are cosmic accidents, uh, whether we're talking a cockroach or Bill Gates. Uh, we're all cosmic accidents. There's nothing intrinsic to our natures. In fact, there is no objective nature to human beings because we're strictly physical. So what about, um, a, what about a vaccinated? What about a vaccinated cockroach? Well, there you go. A, if you're vaccinated and you, and you wear your mask, you're, you're OK. I almost, killed, I almost killed a, a cockroach recently, but I saw he was vaccinated and he had a Band-Aid on his arm and he was wearing a mask. Okay, and so well, I was like, well, that's a good, that cockroach is a good just example for the other cockroaches. And so yeah. I was like, you know, I think we need, we need more of that positivity, I think. But anyway, oh, sorry, absolutely. I interrupted did you. Did you, take a picture, <laughs> did you take a picture and send it to the CDC? I'm sure they would have uh, gladly posted we, we, that. We got a selfie and I, and he wanted a copy. So I think he's, it's got, it's on his cockroach Facebook page now, which I don't How have, cool I, I don't see those pages. I don't follow them. Yeah, well, how yeah, cool so, is that? It, so back it, to humanists. Yes, back to humanism. Real quickly, back to humanists on a on a uh, naturalistic worldview. Abortion would not be wrong because human beings don't have any kind of intrinsic nature that grounds their value. Now contrast that with a, a theistic worldview. All humans have value because they bear the image of their maker. Uh, and because they bear the image of their maker, the shedding of innocent blood is strictly forbidden. Now, that, that is a very clear uh, understanding of what makes humans valuable. On naturalism, though, which is now the foundation for current humanism, there's no basis for treating human beings as any more special than any other thing. So humanism has become anti-humanism. Yeah. The, the, the language of bear the image of his maker. That's cool. Is that a, is that a, is that a phone that plugs into the wall? Um, like, that, I, that... I was supposed to have disconnected that before I got on with you and I didn't do it. No, so it's, I'm it's actually cool going to stand up yeah. and I'm going to disconnect this archaic dinosauric uh, phone that no is upstairs problem. here. Because no problem. I... This meeting I would... is being I was just going to say, I think it's cool that you have a phone, uh, like a wall phone. You know, I'm half tempted to put an old black pay phone on my wall just to have people freak out and wonder what that thing is. <laughs> so why do you think that? Okay, so humanists clearly believe that we should have laws against murder um but i don't what say more about um 
the difference between a, a human and a cockroach. So how uh, I don't know of any humans or humanists. That's such an old word, too. That's like a 90s word kind of. Um, my students don't even know what a humanist is. They probably never heard the term unless it was like a, a course, like you mentioned, like a Western history course or something, if they still teach that. But um, the difference between a human and a cockroach uh, on a purely naturalistic scientific evolutionary perspective however you want to put it how do you establish that the human being is created in the image of god uh, you use the language of bears his maker which i think is the exact way that um Justice McLean described black people and his dissent in Dred Scott. Absolutely. Yeah. He, McLean said, look, that slave, he, I loved his language there. He said he bears the impress of his maker. I love that word. That's impress. right. Okay. Yeah. So you know that quote too. Oh yeah. Very well. Justice McLean, just an interesting you, for everybody listening. I'm sure you know this already, but. Justice McLean, this is in 1856, the, the dissent in Dred Scott. Dred Scott was the case about slavery, famously. Dred Scott was the name of the slave. And um, <clears throat> there's interesting parallels between slavery and abortion. Um, you know, you just got, got an idea to invite Justin Buckley Dyer on, have him talk about his book. Do you know about that book? Slavery, abortion. Say it again. I, I lost you. I, you faded on me. Which book? It's Justin Buckley Dyer's book uh, on slavery and abortion. I actually have it. Yeah. Yeah, it's right there on my shelf. Uh-huh. Okay. I was just talking to myself and saying, I got to invite him on to talk about that book. Yep. But, um. Yeah, uh, Justin Mc Justice McLean became a Republican when the Republican Party was formed. He was on the Supreme Court before the Republican Party was founded, and he wrote a dissent in a case called Prigg versus Pennsylvania in 1842. Um, I don't know if you've read that case or you're familiar with that case, but it's um, it's brutal. It's a brutal case. Uh, be, be ready for it. I mean, Dred Scott is brutal, but this is a slave catching case. It's in 1842. And Justice McLean was put on the Supreme Court by, I believe, Andrew Jackson, I want to say. I, I might be wrong about that. I, and it was a Democrat. But is it, he's an interesting um, story because he dissented in that case, in the slave catching case. For roughly this, it, it, you can see the same flavor. You you would be able to predict that he would have dissented in Dred Scott if you were following that. And of course, the Republican Party was founded in 1854. Dred Scott happened two, two years later, roughly about a year and a half, two years later. And Justice McLean became a Republican. And... Um, in fact, both of the dissents in Dred Scott were Republicans. And, and so, so that's just interesting history for people that are paying attention to this stuff. 
Um, yeah. and, and, and so the link, what would you say the link between slavery and abortion is? Is there any kind of commonality there? There is absolutely. And it's no surprise that leftists and Democrats uh, in particular uh, cry foul anytime we bring up the parallels. But look, they're undeniable. What was the central question in the slavery debate? Well, Lincoln made that very clear. It's this question. Is the slave one of us? That was the issue. Uh, you know, you had uh, Douglas saying, look, I don't care if slavery is voted up or down. Uh, let each state decide for itself. Uh, his whole popular sovereignty argument was basically the pro-choice argument of today on abortion. But Lincoln said that's not going to work because we first have to answer the question, who is this slave? If he's a man, then you cannot own a man the way a man owns his hog. The man will have certain natural rights based on what were articulated in the Declaration of Independence that flow through his nature that prohibit enslaving him. And Lincoln said, we've got to address the issue, who counts as one of us, before we talk about whether there's a choice to own slaves or not. The abortion debate is exactly the same question. Do the unborn count as one of us? And what typically happens is people simply assume the unborn don't count as one of us. They don't specifically argue for it. Um, there's an unbelievable passage that, that points to the parallel we're talking about here. Uh, chapter 32 of the Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. Uh, Huck has been out on an adventure and he happens on the property of Aunt Sally. And Aunt Sally sees him coming up the walkway and she rushes out to meet him and she's all mixed up. She thinks it's Tom Sawyer, it's actually Huck. But she runs up to him and says, boy, where have you been? We've all been waiting for you. Where, where have you been? And Huck just makes up a lie, a story. He says, well, ma'am, uh, we, we were on a steamboat and, 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 and that steamboat blew a cylinder head. And Aunt, Aunt Sally says, well, was anybody hurt? No, ma'am. It killed a Negro, but nobody got hurt. Well, that's good, she said, because sometimes people do get hurt. Whoa, what, what was just assumed about the black man there? That he wasn't one of us. Now contrast that with Joe Biden uh, a year ago on the anniversary of Roe v. Wade. He's in office two days and he is celebrating Roe v. Wade. And here's a paraphrase of what he said. He said, all Americans should celebrate reproductive freedom. Now we all know what he means by reproductive freedom, abortion rights. All Americans should celebrate reproductive freedom because it's good for everyone. Uh, Mr. President, time out. Does quote everyone unquote include the unborn? Is reproductive freedom good for them? Notice he simply assumed the unborn weren't human. He didn't argue for it. And this is a colossal fallacy that you and I are aware of. It's, it's begging the question. Uh, begging the question does not mean raising the question. A lot of people use it that way. It means you assume what you try to prove. Um, people simply assume the unborn aren't human when that's the key issue in the abortion debate. Uh, right. And that's like arguing in a circle. It would be like me saying, the Los Angeles Lakers are the best team in basketball because no team is as good. Uh, I haven't really advanced an argument. I'm just using circular reasoning. Yeah. It's very difficult to predict the future. <laughs> yes. Especially when it's the future. There I, it is. I, I totally botched that Yogi Berra quote. I forget what it was. It was like, I, I, 
What do you know the Yogi Berra quote? I know several, like always be sure you go to other people's funerals or they won't come to yours. Um, <laughs> when you come to a fork in the road, take it. Yeah. 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 Those are great. Um, you know, what would you say uh, about, okay, so the secular humanists are called secular humanists, okay? And yeah. isn't our country supposed to be secular? It's not supposed to be religious, right? It's not, So is secular is the opposite of religion, Scott. And so the secular people are right that we're supposed to, our laws are supposed to be secular. This is the, this is the, this is not my view. This, I'm just saying the view, right? So now if the secular humanists are pro-choice, which is just an empirical a question you can just go and see what their view is on abortion and they are pro-choice they support democrats the secular humanists so why why can't that be the right answer why is that um why is it that that doesn't count against your position and shouldn't we have a well, secular all, government yeah secular well, laws all, the argument yeah. Well, first of all, that secular version of the argument commits the genetic fallacy. In other words, it faults an idea based on its origins rather than its merits. Uh, suppose my argument is religious. You still haven't refuted my syllogism. You still haven't shown that one or more of the premises is false. You haven't shown that the argument is invalid, and you haven't shown that I've used my terms uh, in a way that are unclear. So my argument would still stand. Calling my argument a name religious is a cop-out. It's, it's not a refutation. It's also uh, a category error. Like I said, arguments are sound or unsound, valid or invalid. Calling an argument religious is a category error, like me saying, how tall is the number three? Um, this is not going to serve as a refutation. But let's go to the more specific claim here that the U.S., in particular, has a strict separation of church and state, the secular and the religious. Well, I always want to ask the question, what do you mean by that separation? Do you mean it in a strict sense that the state should not establish an official religion? Or do you mean it in a robust sense that religious believers do not have a right to bring their values to the public square and argue for them the same way that everybody else does? I mean, why all the noise about the separation of church and state, but not the separation of feminist theory in the state or queer theory in the state? Why is it only church uh, worldviews that get excluded, not these other metaphysical symptoms? Look, as you know, Lucas, Everybody in this debate does metaphysics, even a strict naturalist. So let me prove that rather than just state it. Hold on. Everybody you, is doing you, uh, metaphysics. Before you do that, could you define what metaphysics is for everyone? Yeah. Metaphysics is that I'm going to go down to the New Age bookstore after I get done with you, smoke a joint, light some incense, and kind of just float off. No, I'm kidding. Well, that's um, what I mean. Metaphysics. But... Well, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, that's your perspective. That's your standpoint. I yeah, can't when challenge I, it. When I took um, Metaphysics 1 with J.P. Moreland at Biola University yes. as a graduate student, 
That's not what JP meant by the term metaphysics. That's not at all what he meant by yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, and boy, JP is the guy to take uh, metaphysics and epistemology from. Um, metaphysics has to do with questions of being or ultimate grounding of things. Question like Questions like, uh, what is human nature? Uh, questions like, uh, is God's essence physical or non-physical? Uh, these are questions of ultimate being, uh, questions of how we might look at the ultimate grounding of things. So metaphysics on abortion has to do with the question of what makes humans valuable in the first place. And yeah. everybody is engaged on that metaphys metaphysical question. Uh, the pro-life view says that what makes humans valuable is that all humans by nature have a rational uh, essence that bears the image of God and their value comes from their humanity. They're valuable in virtue of the kind of thing they are, not some function they perform. The pro-choice metaphysics says that no, having a particular nature is not what grounds your value. Your functional ability does. And if you are not able to immediately exercise certain functional abilities, you don't have a right to life. Now let's stop right there. Both of those views are inherently religious. Both of them involve prior metaphysical commitments to what makes humans valuable and uh, what our place is in the world. And uh, there's so no way around that. By religious, so for the you mean? Side, to try to disqualify the pro life side for being metaphysically engaged, I'm sorry, both sides are involved in metaphysics because both are answering the same question what makes humans valuable in the first place? Okay. And that's what you mean by religious? Is yeah. metaphysical? Now, that kind of religion, the state has no way to be neutral on. Look, the state either recognizes that each and every human being has an equal right to life, or it doesn't. There's no middle ground there. I know in Roe v. Wade, Blackman tried to appear neutral. He said, we can't decide the question of when human life begins, but then he effectively decided it by deciding that abortion is legal for all nine months of pregnancy, so life doesn't it, begin until birth. It was but, rhetorically look, effective, but not logically effective. Not logically, it was rhetorically effective. But look, Lucas, there's no way to avoid metaphysics. We all do it. Uh, the minute you ask the question, um, does this thing in front of me have rights? You're doing metaphysics. Uh, the minute you inquire about human nature, you're doing metaphysics. Uh, the minute you inquire about the nature of, of right and wrong, you're doing metaphysics. So metaphysics so, is the uh, foundation the of ethics. Silence. Is that what you're saying? Did you catch that? Yes. Metaphysics is the say foundation. Uh, metaphysics is the foundation of ethics then, would you say? Yes. It's the first question we ask, the ultimate grounding of things. Okay. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, no, that's okay. Christians in particular, I think, have a strong metaphysical foundation in that we uh, can explain objective moral values. Uh, objective moral values come from an objective moral law giver. Uh, you can't have objective moral rules without an objective moral law giver. So morals got to come from someplace. Human values got to come from someplace transcendent. Uh, and those concepts of objective morality and uh, transcendent human value fit comfortably in a theistic worldview, but not so much in a naturalistic one. Okay, now I know that we're 
we're getting into something controversial here, but I wanted to ask you about infanticide. And so I don't want to cause any controversy here in this discussion, because I know that we've been doing non-controversial things today. But um, I thought you were going to ask me about vaccines when you said controversial. <laughs> okay, so we have a law against murder. Going back to the secular claim, the issue of secularity. We have secular laws against murder. Supposedly, yeah. right? It's supposedly secular. Uh, but the murder laws start at birth. Okay. I think that's true in all 50 states as well as the federal government. I think on federal property. If, well, you, kill, if you intentionally kill an infant, like if I just go up and t- if somebody goes up to some lady at, at the grocery store on an army base, for example, the PX and takes the three month old baby and smashes the baby on. I, I don't, don't want to say smashes it because a baby is not an it. It uh, the baby is he or she. We only say it if we don't know the gender and we only do that for babies. We don't do that for toddlers or, or we certainly don't do it for older people like what uh are you going to go visit it your grandparents (laughs) i don't know is it a grandfather or grandmother we don't do that but for babies for some reason we say it um i don't know it's kind of a bad pro-choice uh probably habit that we need to break but but let's say that it's a little girl so not an it it's a three-month old girl and maybe her name is melissa let's just say Uh, of course she doesn't have to have a name to be a little girl and we don't have to even know her name to to, for it to be a little girl and i just said it didn't i i said it it's just very natural okay so i know what you mean that's murder though if if I if if someone was to take a little girl out of a grocery cart and the mother's like got her hands full of groceries and just smash that baby on the ground and the you know that would be murder right prima facie unless there's some other thing but it would definitely be illegal yeah. whether it's manslaughter or murder okay so you know aren't aren't we assuming something magically happens at birth with that and can that be can that assumption be justified on secularity and and stuff like that well i would add this one adjustment to what you just said uh in a majority of states right now in the u.s if you kill an unborn human being you you get charged with homicide You get charged, for example, if you're driving your car, Lucas, and you collide with a vehicle. You're saying unborn. Just just to re-say that. that. You said unborn, right? Yes. Majority of states, unborn human being. Okay. Unborn human beings. If uh, If you kill an unborn human being, you get charged with homicide. Uh, The only exception is abortion. So we have this weird cognitive dissonance going on. 
the public is appalled if you drive your car, hit a, another car driven by a pregnant woman and kill her fetus. People think that's a tragedy. Uh, however, if she were on her way to the abortion clinic and instead of getting hit by you, she manages to make it safely to the clinic and have her child aborted there, uh, why no harm, no foul. Uh, so the law is kind of kind of sketchy here on what we're talking about. In fact, I would argue that it's intrinsically inconsistent on this question of, is it okay to kill a human fetus? Um, there's another point though, and that's this. We should so not always so assume you, so that- Hold on one sec. So you, the, when yeah. you say it's intrinsically inconsistent, uh, the law, where you have this um, fact pattern that doesn't match up with the, yeah. the law. In other words, the fact pattern seems to be that the that's the law law is based on is the value of the human being, right? That's correct. So we're arbitrarily drawing lines here, and uh, we're saying that um, an unborn child's value is solely legally is solely determined legally by the mother's mental states at that very moment that's pretty much it if she wants the child it has value and a right to life and if she doesn't it so has if she wakes it. up and and is depressed and smokes pot right like some of my students then that's child abuse if she's pregnant that's child abuse if she wants to keep the child as she's smoking pot yeah. but if she woke up and said eh, i'm gonna get rid of this this pregnancy i'm going to uh make an appointment at planned parenthood but first, I'm going to smoke a bowl of pot. Then that's not child abuse. And you're saying that yeah. that doesn't make any sense. The law against child abuse has to be grounded in a consistent fact pattern. Either the, in other words, a lot of people are yeah. not used to thinking this way, but the value of the child has to be a fact that's taken cognizance of in the law. Is that right? Is that fair to that's say? That's correct. And the way we're applying the law um, is, is really inconsistent. Uh, so Scott Peterson in California uh, goes to jail for double murder. I mean, even in California, they charged that him actually with double happened. murder. Yeah, yeah it happened. Uh, he killed his wife uh, and she was pregnant with a child. And uh, I think her name was Lacey, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Sounds right. Um, Lacey and Peterson. Uh, he got yeah. charged with double murder. Uh, not even homicide, murder. And he's on death row there in, in California. Yet, it would have been perfectly okay for Lacey to kill their child, but not Scott. It's odd. It's, it's, it's that kind of relativism about human value just for that age period is weird. And, and, yeah. and it's just kind of arbitrary to say at that age that's that's uh okay for that age but then later ages it's not okay right 
Well, what is it about the child's location, his size, his level of development, or his degree of dependency that justifies intentionally killing him? Uh, that is the question that people don't want to answer. They love to assert differences between born and unborn, but they don't want to tell us why those differences matter in the first place. And as you know, getting back to the slavery parallel, this is the identical question Lincoln dealt with when he would debate proponents of slavery. They would say that slave differs from us. And Lincoln would say, so? Yeah, he <laughs> differs from us. Why does that matter? Uh, you got to do better. Why do those differences justify enslaving him? And to quote Lincoln almost word for word, here's what he would say. Quote, you say man A is white, man B is dark. Oh, it is skin color then, the fair-skinned man having the right to enslave the dark-skinned man. Take care by that rule, you're a slave to the first person you meet with skin fairer than your own. You say it's not skin color, it's a matter of intellect. The white man, you allege, has superior intellect to the dark man. Take care yet again. By that rule, you're a slave to the first person you meet who has intelligence greater than your own. And you can see what Lincoln is doing here. By the force of principled reasoning, he was showing there was nothing in a matter of principle that justified enslaving the dark man that wouldn't also, that wouldn't also justify uh, enslaving whites. And we're making the same argument. And by the way, our more honest critics do this too. Peter Singer, who has conclusions that are abominable to us, at least he's consistent, because here's what Singer says. Fetus is not self-aware. Newborn is not self-aware. You can kill both. Now, Planned Parenthood is appalled that we can kill newborns, but Singer calls them out on it. There's no essential difference between the fetus and newborn that would protect one and not the other. Uh, at least his consistency is on display there. Absolutely. And I think Planned Parenthood has a very creative and catchy name. It's interesting that they didn't call it Planned Motherhood. I don't know why they chose the term Planned Parenthood since the they were gender father, sensitive even back then. Well, the father has nothing to do with it for them. Well, anyway, um, but Planned Parenthood, um, it seems like just that idea, just on the slogan, yeah. would would imply that um, if you have a, a newborn that you did not plan for, you know, it's interesting. It's just interesting. I, I'm not. I'm not going to suggest because maybe they would say, uh, um, uh, "Adopt" or something. What do you say to to pro-choicers when they say? Um, that uh, we can look at pro-lifers who don't adopt and tell, see what they really believe and that they're hypocrites. Well, here's my answer to that. How does my alleged unwillingness to adopt a child justify you intentionally killing him? I mean, Lucas, imagine if I said to you, unless you agree to adopt my three sons by noon tomorrow, I shall execute them. Now, that's not going to happen. They're bigger than me now. But suppose I said that to you. If you decline, if you refuse my ultimatum, am I justified intentionally killing my sons? Of course not. In other words, let's go back to our syllogism. How does my alleged unwillingness to adopt a child 
prove that my syllogism is invalid, unsound, or unclear? The answer is it does none of that. All it does is launch an ad hominem attack on me. It doesn't refute my argument. And this is why I said right up front, the three most important words are syllogism, syllogism, syllogism. It's not going to work to refute the pro-life argument by pointing out that I'm somehow inconsistent. Maybe I am, but my argument could still be valid, could still be sound. And I think a lot of pro-lifers forget to keep the main thing the main thing. Their first answer when someone says, well, what about all the kids? Are you adopting all the ones you don't want aborted? They say, yeah, we're willing to adopt. Stop right there. You just bought the premise that your behavior determines the validity of your argument. And, And nothing could be further from the truth. Challenge the premise. Even if I am that stingy, even if I am that bad, how does that refute my essential syllogism? How does it justify you intentionally killing an innocent human being yeah it's just as beautifully said it's just as irrelevant to refuting you as me saying i don't like your shirt therefore you're wrong yeah it's an ad hominem attack that even if it's true does nothing to refute the argument that's been advanced and sometimes the ad hominem attacks are are more subtle uh there'll be things like uh oh well, you know, uh, you think abortion is is uh, unjust killing? Uh, okay, fair enough. Are you willing to shoot abortion doctors then? You would shoot a neighbor who is killing his, his toddler in the front yard. If you saw a neighbor shooting or getting ready to execute his toddler in the front yard of his home, and the only way you could stop him was lethal force, you would use it. But you won't use lethal force against abortionists. There goes your whole argument. All right, well, let's look at this for a moment. Suppose I'm just a coward. I'm afraid to shoot an abortionist, either because I fear him or fear being prosecuted. Um, Could my argument, my syllogism for the pro-life view still be valid and sound even if I unwillingly apply it? And of course the answer is yes. My argument stands or falls on its merit, not my behavior. But by the way, I don't think I am inconsistent on this. What follows from believing that abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being is that you will work to take out the machinery of death, not that you will shoot individual abortion advocates. Uh, To give you one example of this, in World War II, the Allies dropped incognito behind German lines prior to D-Day. Allied soldiers that were dressed German, they looked German, smelled German, had German cigarettes, spoke flawless German, They were spies. Every one of them believed Hitler was evil. But when they landed behind enemy lines prior to the invasion, did they immediately start shooting up individual Nazi uh, soldiers? No, they were after bigger game. They were there to spy out the land and prepare for taking out the machinery of death. And pro-lifers are doing the same thing. What follows from our opposition to abortion is that we will work to gain legal protection for unborn humans not that we'll shoot up individual abortion doctors. That was a beautiful setup to the next thing that we're going to talk about, which is strategy and issues. Um, One of the things that you've alluded to earlier today, Roe versus Wade, which was the key thing that happened in the abortion debate, 1973. Uh, you mentioned that uh, some people criticize the uh, uh, the 
do you call it anti-abortion or do you call it pro-life? Which do you call it? I call it pro-life. Okay. The pro-life movement. Do you have a problem with calling it anti-abortion? Is that? Um, Pro-life has always been the term that has been used to describe those who oppose abortion. And lately there's been an attempt by our critics to take that label away from us and say, you're not really pro-life because if you were pro-life, you'd be opposing the treatment of refugees. You'd be supporting tax increases to alleviate poverty. You'd be against war. You'd be against capital punishment. You would be for equitable pay. You'd be anti-gun. And I mean, they give us a whole laundry list of things we have to do to to be quote pro-life. Well, I don't um, mind. I I'm don't not mind buying the... that. I'm not going to let our critics. Go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say I don't mind the label anti-slavery. No, and I don't mind anti-abortion. But why do okay. I rhetorically need to give up a label? No one goes to pro-choicers and said, "Well, you know what? You don't have a right to that label. You're not pro-choice on school choice. You're not pro-choice on taxation. You're not pro-choice on school unions. You're not pro-choice on COVID-19 measures. Therefore, <laughs> you are not pro-choice. You are pro-abortion." I mean, no, nobody demands that of them, but yeah, they do of pro-lifers. Right. Uh, yeah. I mean, imagine going to the American Cancer Society and saying. Uh, you have no right to call yourself uh, a healthcare group because you're only fighting one disease and not many. What are you doing about lupus? What are you doing about diabetes? What are you doing about strokes and, and heart disease? Uh, you're not a health organization. You, you just want to be that, but sorry, you lose. I mean, nobody would say that to them, but they say that exact same thing to pro-lifers. The argument that you just used is a type of, is it? would you say it's a reductio ad absurdum type of argument? Yeah. So what's a, yeah. strat- what's a strategy with reductio ad absurdum? Why is that a good form of argument? Well, it's it's basically showing that your opponent is going to pay too high a price to hold that position, that yeah. his argument is going to prove more than he wants it to. Uh, and it, it takes the wind out of his sails immediately. Um, yes. And that's why, you know, I, I, I think at times you need to be selective. Not everything can be reduced that way. But at times it's, it's fair play. Well, uh, Scott, you're giving us, uh, you're hitting so many interesting, and I know we're kind of barely scratching the surface, but I think what people are going to be hearing from this is the very obvious thing that you are very well prepared and you've thought deeply about this and you're ready. You're ready on a moment's notice because we did not plan this episode at all i just said hey you want to come on and we are just flying from the hip so it's important for people to understand that's really how this episode came about in fact actually that's how all my episodes come about is i don't plan them i just like bring them on and we're already ready we're already prepared because we put in the hard work years and years of this and we're all about helping people move the ball down the road in their own life how they can get prepared but I just want to say, ask you something really quickly about the Supreme Court before I, we go into your work and how we can link how to support you and learn more about what you're doing online and stuff. Um, when you mentioned early on that um, you mentioned early on that there's a criticism of the pro-life view that it's been 50 years since Roe versus Wade and 
what have we done? I would just say as, as a PhD in public law and American politics, that that's a function, believe it or not, to a large extent on the power of the Supreme Court in our system, the way it's designed. That's a, that's a political science-y yeah. thing to say, but it's yeah. just an observation that the court is very powerful even when it lacks authority and it and it what i mean by lacks authority is i don't mean that people won't follow the wrong decision and agree to it i mean it lacks the deeper authority that it really needs for it to be true law and i would just say that a good Supreme Court decision has to be justified. And the court recognizes this too, which is why they issue justifications for their decisions. No other, uh, no other function of government is quite like it. The legislative branch will give kind of rough reasons, you know, whereas this and whereas that, and a lot of that's BS. Uh, the president might say, hey, I'm going to pardon this guy, but he doesn't have to give a reason. He just has the blanket power to pardon. Now, the court could just give a per curiam decision without giving any reasons, but they recognize and it's always been recognized since the very earliest Supreme Court decisions and federal court decisions that they really do need to justify their result. And as soon as they say that, and as soon as they acknowledge that, then they're admitting that their, their justifications could miss the mark and they can be uh, subject to scrutiny and they could be wrong actually. And they, and then later they could be overturned. And that's the wonderful thing about our system, but it, because the Supreme court is so powerful and because the court system takes so long and it's so tricky, uh, that's where I'm going with this is it's so important to get the right judges in there that don't make those mistakes. And it's really hard to know who those people are ahead of time. And I know you've thought about yeah. this. And that goes to the strategy you mentioned earlier, like you mentioned going behind enemy lines and the you're not shooting the first Nazi that you see because that's not strategic. So right. really, I mean, it's about a, some part of this is um, about getting figuring out who the right judges are. How do we do that? Well, um, this may be controversial for some of your leaders, but if or some of your readers and listeners, uh, but I'm just going to say it. Uh, if the court overturns Roe v. Wade, and it will also have to overturn Planned Parenthood versus Casey, because what the Dobbs case presents the court with, the Mississippi case known as Dobbs, the state of Mississippi passed a ban on abortion after 15 weeks. But Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey say you cannot restrict abortion until after viability, which they put at 24 weeks. So in order for the court to uphold the Mississippi law, it's going to have to gut Roe and Casey to do it. Otherwise, 
what's the court going to do? Invent a new viability standard and say, well, we're just going to arbitrarily move the line to 15 weeks instead of 24? Well, that's not going to help the credibility of the court. So I'm of the opinion they're going to overturn the court or overturn Casey and overturn Roe. And I'll go out on a limb and say, I think it will be 6-3. And my reason for that is that even though Ju Judge Roberts has been trending left lately, his main concern is that the credibility of the court be preserved. That seems to be his overriding um, focus as Chief Justice. Once he sees the majority is going to go that way, he'll vote with the majority to preserve uh, the credibility of the court. That's what I think he will do. Uh, plus, he may not want Clarence Thomas writing the majority of his opinion. He'd rather do it himself. I don't know. But that's going to be my guess. But here's the thing, Lucas. Um, when the court does that, you better be willing to thank former President Donald Trump. I know there's a lot of people that think you can't be Christian and support Trump. And look, the man had his moral flaws. Let's not pretend they weren't there. But at the end of the the whole process here, if you're happy with what the court does, you have one man to thank, Donald Trump. And uh, I better not see a bunch of David French style essays that say, oh, you're, you're violating your Christian faith to be happy today uh, because the court did this. Uh, no, uh, this man did something very important. How do we get good judges? We do our best to pick presidents to appoint them. And sometimes we get that wrong. Uh, look, uh, Ronald Reagan got it wrong with Sandra Day O'Connor. Uh, you know, George Herbert Walker Bush got it wrong with Souter. Um, there, there are all, all kinds of examples of us making a wrong call. I'm hopeful we got it right this time. I'm hopeful. And uh, I'm actually quite optimistic we're going to get it right. But we have to be politically involved. This notion that says we... Um, we can be pro-life, but we don't have to deal with the political ramifications. Uh, that's a huge bifurcation on what it means to be pro-life. Uh, if I were on a slave ship as an African man in uh, 1860 outside Charleston Harbor, and I was a Christian slave, I would be praying very hard that my brothers and sisters on the mainland would get political and do something about my condition. Um, Politics and, and what is political part of how we apply our Christian in, in the in the situation you just mentioned in 1860, specifically what what do you what would be the political decision you'd hope that Christians would make at that time? Well, at that point, I'm going to assume a pre-civil war because we're still a year out from you know the opening shots of of well, Manassas it was an election year, Fort Sumter. What's that? 1860 was an election year. It was. Yeah, it was. And that's when Lincoln got elected. So I would have voted for Lincoln. I would have pray, uh, prayed that they would vote for Lincoln, uh, that they would vote for his party and would oppose the pro-slavery uh, forces. And uh, their their Christian yeah. worldview applies. No problem. Right. That's not an issue. Right. It, the, the it's not that politics per se is a problem. It's that actually the opposite <laughs> it's yeah. it's it's trying to put your head in the sand and pretend that god has placed us here not to take responsibility for what happens to people that's a problem yeah, yeah. wouldn't you say yeah. that's correct it's, 
it's a huge problem uh, that, you know, hey, I can oppose abortion personally, but I'm not going to lift a finger to stop it politically. Uh, how does that square with a well, uh, well-orbed Christian worldview? The answer is it, it, it doesn't. Yeah. I would add one thing to what you said. I agree with what you said about Trump. Um, I would also add that we have to thank the Republican Senate. Uh, yes, Mitch, we do. Mitch McConnell. He that's, did a good contra- job. that's controversial to say, but it's absolutely just as important as the president. Because Without they stood Mitch McConnell, you don't get those judges. They didn't stand, they stood by Brett Kavanaugh when he was being yep. skewered like like a, a roasted right. pig on a beach in yep. Hawaii. I mean, they were they they stood by him. And I would also say Chuck Grassley, who was the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, and all of the Republicans on the Senate Judiciary Committee. I would yeah. I would even include yeah. Jeff Flake in that when he was there, because even though he was flaky. But, well, you know, and and you look at Susan Collins. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And this this raises a point um, not to close out our time on strictly partisan politics, but I'm going to get somewhat partisan here for a moment. <laughs> Why do you think I called it, it the Republican professor? There you, you have go. total freedom. The reason is, is because the reason I called it that people, I got so much pushback on that. People were like, no, it's a conservative. professor. No, it's, it's the constitutional. No, it's a classical liberal. No, it's, I was like, no, 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 no. Okay. No, no. I want yeah. people to feel free to make wisecracks about Democrats or you can make wisecracks about Republicans. I don't censor. I'm pro first amendment. Right. I'm pro Second Amendment right. as well, so watch it. Yeah, but um, you know, I, I think that uh, it's 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 we need to make these connections, even if it's just by osmosis. I mean, we need to make these free associations. It helps, I think. So go ahead. It really does, and and here's what what I would give your listeners to think about: What does it mean to vote pro life? Now, a few years ago, I refused to sign a pledge that was passed around that said, I will never vote for a candidate who supports abortion. I did not sign that pledge because I did not believe it was pro-life. And let me explain what I mean. What does a pro-life vote look like at the legislative level? If I were given a choice in my district between a pro-life Democrat and a pro-abortion Republican, guess who I would vote for? (laughs) I'm going to vote vote for for the the Democrat. Nope. I'm going to vote for the pro-abortion Republican. Okay. And here's why. At the legislative level, uh, politics is party-driven, not individual-driven. If Democrats control the chamber, pro-life legislation is dead on arrival. Not only that, bad bills will get advanced. If Republicans control the chamber, 90% of them are going to vote pro-life. They're going to vote with me. The few that won't aren't going to be an issue. Uh, And therefore, I'm going to vote for the party that's most likely to advance protection for human life. Uh, A pro-life Democrat will never get a chance to vote on a pro-life bill unless his party is in the minority, because if it's in the majority, He'll never have a chance to do it. So the pro-life Democrat is no good to me whatsoever in saving lives. 
I will vote for the party most likely to limit the evil and promote the good. Now, I'm not saying Republicans are perfect in all way. Uh, they're darn close in a lot of ways. But look, uh, there's clearly a difference between the parties. And to pretend otherwise is just intellectually dishonest. Yeah. When people talk about the uni party, um, they're looking on one plane and they're not seeing the, some of the deeper issues that are really there that are different. And um, some of this is up to us because we do have, uh, we, we, we should take on responsibility for shaping the party as well. And that's another right. reason to be active because there are constant pressures to corrupt right. these institutions. There just are. And a lot of them have been corrupted. Doesn't mean they're totally lost just means that right. we now have a lot of more work to do on that uh, on these issues and that so we, we do. Um, now i would i would make a, a i would make one a criticism of trump and it's a it's a it's from a tragic sense so like what victor davis hansen would say a tragic view of the world i don't have a one of those optimistic naive views i mean i i'm optimistic that in revelation 20 Somebody is sitting on a, a throne and is going to judge wisely and justly. And I'm optimistic that the Holy Spirit is with us in our work here and that uh, we are on the right side. I, I do believe that, but I'm right. not naive about it. And uh, But I would say about Trump, I would say that uh, he was running on, it, it's just, it's a tragic irony. It's kind of an irony. And he's going to face it in the future. And you got to think about this, that Trump's worst enemy is Trump. And politically, I mean, because he, yeah. he could have been so much more effective politically. And I think yes. part of it is his temperament and part of it is stuff that's not going to change his 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 uh, personality and, and things like that. But ironically, Twitter probably helped him by taking him off, ironically. Right. But but I would say this, I would say that um, it, it's ironic that when people run for office as a non-politician, that that first of all, that is ironic. Just that right there. I'm not a politician, but I'm running for office. Please vote for me. That kind of contradiction is uh, fraught with problems. He if he yeah. would have become a politician he would have been more effective, which is exactly what he hated yeah. um, because politicians are careful about what they say and they, and they, they are, they don't want to offend the wrong people. And, and so I just wanted to make that point. That's all. Tell no, us it's about a fair point. I, yeah. I agree. And, and believe me, I've got criticisms of Trump. In fact, I'm hoping he doesn't run this next time around. I, <laughs> I really would prefer at this point DeSantis. But um, yeah, we'll I see. do appreciate what he did for the federal courts. And by the way, my um, comments politically are not, I have to say this because of a stupid law, but well, uh, my free. comments uh, about politics are my own. I'm not representing Life Training Institute here. Uh, I'm okay. speaking as Scott, the individual, to the Republican professor. <laughs> yeah, well... We don't have that problem here at the Republican. I, I love it that you don't. And uh, 
by the way, before I, I have to scurry off here, um, tell us how we support you. A, a brief plug for how people can, um, yes, get a hold of us. What, what, uh, what kind of work are you doing and how can people find out more information? How to, how can they support you? Well, people who would like to learn more, I would invite you to consider uh, taking some advanced training. And let me give you three options for that. The first would be to take a graduate course for credit at Cedarville University this summer that I'll be teaching. That course is a, a summer intensive and uh, you do a bunch of reading before you show up for the one week of lectures in June. And then you have time to finish your reading and write your final paper after the lectures. Uh, that's going to happen starting in June, and um, you can go to the Cedarville's website to get information about that, cedarville.edu. Uh, another option you have is to take that same course at the undergraduate level that I'll be teaching. Both these courses are for credit. You earn academic credit. Uh, that's going to be at South Florida Bible College and Seminary in Fort Lauderdale in July. Uh, that course will also start in May, later in the month. Uh, and you can register for that course if you prefer Florida over Ohio. Uh, then there's a third option. And these are Some online? Are these are online? No, it's in person. In, in person. person. Okay, that was an important yep. distinction. Okay. Yep. In now, person. there is an online option here, and that's option three. Uh, you might be thinking, I don't need credit. I just want to get the training. Okay, here's the option for you. Frank Turek's cross-examination uh, ministry has online Christian courses, and I have a course there called The Ethics of Abortion. We take a deep dive into the best thinkers on the other side, Jeff McMahon, Peter Singer, Michael Tooley, David Boonin. Um, we examine the strongest arguments against the pro-life view and show why they are not persuasive. We equip you to be a pro-life apologist, but I will warn you, you will work your butt off. Uh, you have no idea the amount of work you're going to have to put in. Is I am it self -paced? one professor. What's is that? It, is it self-paced? It is. It can be self-paced if you want to do the self-paced version. The Frank Turret course has two options. Self-paced, where you can go at your own rate and you're not granted a certificate for finishing it. Or you can do the premium version where you get Zoom calls with me and you have a 10 week window to finish things up. And uh, we had the first time around 55 students do that and uh, they loved it. And so it went so well last fall, we're rerunning it again, starting April 18th. Uh, just go to crossexamine.org and look at the um, online courses that are available. Uh, anybody that wants to contact us, uh, our website is prolifetraining.com prolifetraining.com. If you want to support our work, reaching out to students, you can do it there. Uh, we go into Catholic and Protestant high schools and do pro-life apologetics presentations. Uh, we don't do abstinence talks. We support those groups, but that's not what we do. We do, why is the pro-life case true and reasonable to believe? That's what we focus on, the worldview stuff. Uh, and we reach an awful lot of students doing just that. We have a team of speakers that spreads out all over the country and, and does those kinds of talks. Scott, uh, what's the course called at Cedarville University? What's the course? Called? That is going to be called Abortion, Rhetoric, and Philosophy. And what's the course and, called? Uh, what at, I'll do, uh, at, Lucas, at I'll Florida. send you a link to it. Okay. 
And what's the course so you called? You can put that up on your site. And I'll do one other thing. I'm what's the send Florida course notes. called? What's the Florida? What's, that? what's the Florida course called? Uh, it is called the Ethics of Abortion. Okay, same as the Frank Turk. Yep. Okay. Yep. You said something about sending me something. I'm going to send you not only links to those uh, courses, but I'm going to send you lecture notes where anybody that goes to your website, if if you want to pin them there, uh, they can get a summary of the pro-life argument, the support for it, uh, and just that syllogism and a way to kind of review what we talked about here. That sounds great. That sounds great. Thanks so much for joining us today, Scott. Thank you, uh, Lucas. We'll we have to meet in person. And uh, next time I'm out in California, are you in Northern California now or Southern? I'm in Southern California, Southern California. Southern. You got to say that right. Southern. I got Southern California. I got a truck outside. I got a gun rack. Yeah. You got to put that egg in your throat to say it right. You know? <laughs> oh, I'm working yeah. on it. I'm working on it. it, it it's not Statesboro. It's Statesboro. You know, you got You got to get that right. You know, uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm going to be out in California in April. And, uh, you know, if time permits, we may just need to see if we can't meet. That's right around the corner. Yeah. yeah. It's coming up. Are you near the valley? Well, like I can be like. Depending. Like you can be. I'm in Orange County. Like, yeah. OK, so you're you're close. We might be able to, to find a. Uh, a place to engage in some Spurgeon fellowship. Okay. Sounds great. Yeah. If not that trip, the next one, but it would be fun. Hey, thanks for having me on. And uh, yeah. uh, thanks for coming on. Hope we can have a conversation like this again. It was fun. Uh, we'll do uh, episode two, uh, maybe later in the year. If that sounds good. Sounds great, sir. Okay. See ya.